welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. Had I maybe, you know, a few months ago asked the question, what is the great theme, or what is one of the great themes in the book of Isaiah, um, you having, you know, sat under the, the teaching here for, for some time might have concluded, oh, it's, it's judgment. There's a lot of judgment going on. And true enough, there's, there's just cycles of, of judgment in which Isaiah is um, pronouncing God's judgment upon them because of their idolatry. But at the same time, and it's a little bit more amplified and magnified in these last few chapters, we begin to see unfolding God's work of salvation, His plan of redemption. And it becomes, um, even though it it was a hint in many of the early chapters in the book of Isaiah, it becomes a prominent theme here in these last few chapters. And it will continue to be so throughout through the end of the book as we study it. And in a way, the chapter that we're, we're visiting today, Isaiah 55, it's as though God is saying, I'm done. Let's, let's announce this great salvation. And when God's preparing you know, the, the redemption that He's working for His people in the last few chapters, He's telling them you know, how it's going to work and how it's going to affect people. But right here, God just simply wants to make an announcement that this, what God has been preparing and working on, He wants to say it's ready and He wants to announce it. And we must ask, how does God want to announce his, his, the great fulfillment of all His promises? The promises to His people Israel. The promises to King David that He made for the Messianic line, for the Messiah to come through Him. How exactly does He announce it? In our day, in, you know, in our uh, marketing era that we're in, we announce things as, you know, you know, uh, urgency with urgency, of course, and we often want to announce a limitation on, on what's going on. For instance, you know, that, you know, this is a limited time only, or this is a limited edition, or a limited number of things. You know, we, when we shop for a vehicle, it's like, you, do you want the Jeep Grand Cherokee, or do you want the Jeep Grand Cherokee limited? Oh, I want the limited, because, you know, it's more rare. There's, there's a sense of value that we can assign to it. But when God announces His salvation, He's, as though it were right here at Isaiah, announcing a feast. And He's declaring in this letter to the exiles, He's declaring the imminence of His promises being fulfilled. And it's like the announcement of a feast. You know, our culture, we, we might know what that looks like if, if, if our family maybe dines together and shares meals together. There's a certain point at which the cook has to say, dinner's ready. You know, my, my family's very small and our, you know, we're just in our apartment, but my wife usually has to nudge me and say, Jared, dinner's ready. Stop whatever you're doing. And it usually it takes me about 10 minutes to finish what I'm doing since I'm, I'm very poor at that. And, um, but really, the, the, the importance of that announcement after the meal is ready lets everyone know what's going on. And it's not a limited meal. God is making this big announcement for everyone to come and partake. 
And so, essentially, in this passage, in this passage, uh, God likens his promises fulfilled to an open feast that he's just prepared for everyone to come and enjoy. But the question here in the subtext of this chapter is, are we ready to receive this meal? And so it's a call for us to quickly come and partake of the blessings and the promises of God. So let's go ahead and start reading in Isaiah chapter 55. It begins, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and, the whole, and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. And so this chapter begins announcing this feast. So this chapter begins with an announcement. And it's a cry, it's a shout. In other translations, it might have some kind of exclamation like, hey, or ho, hey everyone, this is what's going on right here. That's the, that's the effect. And this is God speaking, making this announcement. So what's included in this feast that God is announcing right here? Well, we, we come to see that anyone who's thirsty come to the water. So we see that there's water, there's refreshment at this great feast. But then it goes a little bit further. And it's not just water. It's including, in verse 1, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So there's a sense of richness in these, uh, in these things. There, there's a richness in this feast. Wine and milk are just signs of, here's a, here's a rich culture. Here's prepared food. And we also see right here that there's a mention of bread. Why spend your money for that which is not bread? Because God, in later in verse 2, he's, he's offering rich food. And so we see that there, there's this part of the, the course of this meal that God is offering. But also notice, as I mentioned before, it's a completely open invitation and it's completely free. And the wording is kind of funny right here. It's like, hey, here's a feast. Great, how much is it? Well, you can buy it and it's free. So it's like, you can purchase it but, and it's free. It's absolutely free. We're naturally, you know, apprehensive about free things. There's, there's the cliche, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And you know, when you get an email saying, oh, here's a free offer for something like that, you're like, kind of like, the business is going to make money somewhere else. Especially, you know, Spectrum Internet. I get like phone. I used to get phone calls regularly, and they would be like, "Hey, you want some free TV?" I was like, "No, I don't want. I don't want your TV," because they know they're going to get me to pay for something somehow. So usually, when something's free, it makes us apprehensive or it makes us suspicious. 
But many of us who maybe aren't cheapskates often will spend money on things that are valuable to, valuable to us. I mentioned the, the idea of a limited edition of something. We'll, we'll pay more for the limited edition trim model of a vehicle. Or we'll pay more to be in this exclusive club that, that we think, okay, here's, this is valuable, therefore it's, it's worth something. And we often think in, the, in our minds, the more exclusive something is, the more valuable it is. And yet, right here, God is saying, I have the most valuable fees for you, and yet it is also free and open. And as God extends this invitation, He offers kind of a soft reprimand. If you noticed in verse 2, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And on a surface level, we're thinking, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's good money management. You know, it's, it's common sense in money. You can purchase a lot of expensive things, but if you're neglecting, you know, regular staples and, and food sustenance, uh, why would you do that? Why would you neglect those kind of basic needs? But more to the point, this verse is kind of saying, why are you spending money in that which is kind of the, in, in, a, in a not bread, in something that's like bread, but not? It's, it's like the substance of bread, but it's not the satisfaction of bread. It's a subpar substitute. In other words, God is saying, whatever you're looking in life to satisfy you, don't be ripped off. Don't be coaxed into paying for something and expending your labor and your money on something that's not going to actually satisfy the deep hunger that you have inside. Don't be ripped off on a substitute on an I can't believe it's not bread, on something that's worthless and you think it's bread, but it's actually not. It gives you no satisfaction. But what is exactly satisfaction according to this verse? And what do we mean exactly by satisfaction? In today's culture, I mentioned earlier a little bit about streaming, and, and we have this culture of streaming now, and we, we binge watch, and you know, we, we're you know, ultimate consumers, especially now in these past few months with COVID, when we have a little bit of extra time at home. We become consumers of content, simply. But is that the satisfaction that he, he's talking about, this, that we, we have consumers and, and, and we, we binge on things and we have this over-fullness that we endure a lot of times from, if not food, but if not food, it's maybe digital content? Not, not exactly. In this case, in this chapter in Isaiah, satisfaction seems to be that something that not just fills the stomach, but satisfies fully and properly. It's a satisfaction with the ultimate good and the fullness, it's having a fullness of the ultimate best that comes from God. And so that's why we get referred to rich food. Not just empty carbs, not just cheapy food, but this is good, rich, solid food. It, it almost brings up and, and uh, helps our palate to ascend to the sense of goodness to give us this kind of appetite for good things. And I hope you're getting the sense in this chapter now that God is talking about more than simply physical food. The feast is meant to represent the promises and the fullness of the promises of God. Observe in, in verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, 
Incline your ear and come to Me. Hear that your soul may live. There's a, sense in, there's a sense in which this is a picture, this feast is a picture of really taking apart and par- partaking, I should say, of God's promises. It's a sense of God fulfilling the spiritual hunger that only God satisfies in our soul. And so, when God fulfills His promises in our life, it's the same as though we, we are satisfied with the good meal. There's a sense of taking the Word of God and His promises, putting it in our mouth, it coming down and digesting and becoming a part of us and basically fulfilling its purpose in our life. That's the sense in which God is saying, listen to Me. Incline your ear to Me that your soul may live and be satisfied. And God is the One, He's saying, that satisfies us with all good things. Not only food on the table, not only daily sustenance, but our true spiritual hunger. Our deepest spiritual needs. Do you know that you have spiritual needs that are even more important than your physical needs? You have needs to, for forgiveness of sins. You have needs for the fellowship of God. And those who recognize that kind of need who come to see their need for their Creator and their need for God's grace to enter into their lives and forgive them of the sins, the things they've done wrong, the ways they've offended God, that is a, what we might call a spiritual hunger. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus is speaking and He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. God knows that He can satisfy us in our deepest spiritual hunger. And therefore, when God is inviting us to a feast like this, He has no other ulterior motive than to simply satisfy us. Do you realize that? When we are called you know, to, to believe on God and to repent, It's not a a drag. It's actually the best thing possible for you. There's that that, uh, early passage in uh, Augustine's uh, Confessions, his book called The Confessions, where he says, our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. And God recognizes that. And God says, come to Me because I'm the only one who actually can satisfy you. So God invites you to a feast and He has no ulterior motive other than that. He's not inviting you to you know, tell you everything that's wrong with you and try to do this. He says, I can help you. I can forgive you. I can um, come to you in this way. It's not so God can pitch us something or sell us something or, or take all our money or something like that. He's not going to give us a multi-level marketing pitch when He invites us over to dinner. He says, I'm going to deeply satisfy you. Um, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, remarks on this passage in Isaiah and he makes this kind of connection. He says, quote, If a friend invites guests to his table, he does not expect they should bring money to pay for their dinner. Only come with an appetite. So, says God, it is not penance, pilgrimage, self-righteousness I require. Only bring a stomach. 
Do you realize for, for you to join into fellowship with God, all it takes to initiate that and to, to get on that journey is not do this, do that, have penance, go to church for a minimum amount of time, and then you can start going to, to uh, get on the steps to, to knowing God personally or having fellowship with Him. God says, simply, if you're hungry, just come to me and be satisfied. Simple as that. As Thomas Watson says, only bring a stomach. So what is our spiritual appetite? We have to ask ourselves, are we hungry for God? Thomas Watson makes a, a further point as he explores that, and he kind of says, if you're, not, if you're not hungry for God, then something's wrong. Because, you know, appetite usually means that a person is well and healthy and alive. And so are you hungry for God? God's kingdom is not, we should underscore, it's not like a privileged club it's more likened to a soup kitchen in which we are the ones who are impoverished and poor and we are beggars and we can't even pay for this meal. And yet God's saying, come, eat richly. That's the kingdom of God. But what exactly, I've mentioned the, God, the promises of God, what exactly are the promises God's inviting them to partake in? Well, we'll we see that in verse 3, the second half of verse 3. God is saying, I will make you in everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Now God is talking, of course, to um, Israel who's been exiled and in Babylon right here. And the days of King David are long past. And yet, God made a vow and a covenant with David to always have someone to sit on the throne. And it eventually indicates that a Messiah will come through the line of David. And so God right here is referring to His past covenant with David and His past faithfulness in order to invite them into the promises that He has for them. In other words, He uses the mercies that He had with David, the, the love that He had with David, as a way to manifest His love for them. It's, in the, it's of the same substance. And God says, because of that love, you can know that I will be faithful to you today. We know and we teach, of course, about God's love, but we often maybe forget about how God applies His love in Scripture. Nowadays, we might refer to love as just let, let it be or be and let be. You know, just lo love this person, let them do whatever they want. Or, or it's a sense of niceness and doesn't really go past than that. But God, for love, it's faithfulness. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, it's, it's not on the screen, but it's just God explains to him, explains to his people why he chose them. And he said, simply because I loved you. And if you turn also to Psalm chapter 89, verse 33, God also mentions his love as the reason he saves his people. The entire psalm is really just about God's faithfulness to David and how, how God will maintain that line of David because of that love and He'll fulfill promises. And so God says in Psalm 89, verse 33, starting, He says, But I will not remove from Him, talking about David, my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. 
But as uh, this psalm kind of winds down and we want to drop down to verse 49, we see the psalmist kind of um, wrap up the psalm by saying, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? This is kind of like a, a psalm in exile, a psalm in great tribulation where these people were being judged for their idolatry. And the psalmist is like, God, where is your faithfulness in this? And God answers in Isaiah chapter 55. God says in this passage, here is my love. Here is my faithfulness. This is my steadfast love. I'm going to preserve the line of David. And not only that, for those of us who are like, I I see this promise, how does this relate to me? The, The fact that God has compassion on His people in this way directly relates to all of us today because God is going to establish a wide reaching, completely open and everlasting covenant that will be modeled in substance in his co- after his covenant with David. So, verse 3, near the end, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Verse 4, behold, I made him a witness to these people, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel. So He has glorified you. So there's universal realization of the promises of God. And that's how they affect us in 2020 today. The figure who is David stands as kind of a witness to the faithfulness and the promises of God. But suddenly there's a shift in the subject right here. And God says, you talking to his people in verse 5, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And this appears to be you know, God's directive to his nation in exile. Not only will God's promises involve them returning to their original land out of exile, but notice here other nations they don't even know, recognize, or maybe haven't ever heard of will follow them there, if you will. Follow them to the same promised land, if you will, of God, seeking the same God. And so we have hints here of the vastness of God's promises. So that's what that is right there. And as we continue on, we'll read Isaiah chapter uh, 55, continue on in verse 6. It says here, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it, forth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that, be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so, right here, God is offering an exhortation. 
He offers an announcement and then he offers an exhortation. We learn the urgency with which we should entrust ourselves to God's promises because of God's trustworthiness, because of God's faithfulness. Seek the Lord while we may, He may be found. Are we seeking God today? I hope we are as a church because that's in our mission statement. We wouldn't really be much without it. But what does seeking mean exactly here? And what does it mean for our church mission statement? Does it mean that God's hiding from us? That God needs to be invoked or conjured in our midst? Actually, rather, seeking here implies commitment and determination and persistence to know God. That God has made Himself available and we are called to know Him. We are commanded to know Him. But we also see that we are called to seek the Lord while He may be found. And you might think, well, Jared, is that, is that a limited time offer? Is, is there going to be a time in which God cannot be found? Well, by all means, the way in which we can find God is through His promises. Because God is near to us in more ways than we might think. We might think, well, I don't see God. Did I miss His nearness? I don't see His face. I don't, I don't feel His presence. But there's a way in which God is near to us. Because God reveals Himself at His own pleasure, but God is near to us in three ways if we want to give it a list. And we see that in this passage of Scripture. God is near in calling for repentance. Notice that in verse 7. The way to seek God is for us to forsake our evil ways, to forsake our sins and our wickedness. God says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on them. So it's not simply being sorry or stopping the things wrong that you are doing, but you're called to completely turn around what you're doing and emerge a changed person. And when God shows up in a person's life, the thing we should be doing, recognizing that God is holy and we've really offended Him, is to emerge that changed person, is to repent from our ways. True repentance, as we see here, isn't you know, a split-second decision. It isn't simply an emotional experience that you've had when experiencing a powerful worship service or a particularly strong sermon or, or in my case, a particularly mediocre one or confrontation maybe with a brother or sister. It's not simply that instant experience, but God is saying it's an entire lifestyle of repentance. God is saying, leave your thoughts and for many of us, including myself, it's do this every single day. Not just a one-time thing, but a lifetime of repentance. And so when God is near, He shows Himself by having people come and repent. There were a lot of, especially in the, the 1800s, a lot of emphasis, especially in America, on revival. Of, hey, revivalism, we're going to create a revival, we're going to set up a tent, and we're going to create this revival. And lots of people showed up and... Really, if we want to 
see whether a revival has truly taken place, we must ask ourselves, are people truly repenting and turning from their sins? Is their life completely changed from what it was before? That's really how we can tell whether a revival took place. Not whether people showed up or whether things or crowds um, um, came and, and felt impacted. It's, is there a lifestyle change? And so when God really shows up and when He comes near, repentance will happen. But also, God is near when we repent in compassion. God is near in offering compassion. This is not only an opportunity to feel sorry for what we've done. God is extending this opportunity of, hey, here's a chance for you to be forgiven and to be restored and to return in fellowship with me. The idea of repentance is not you know, mere penitence. As though repentance is just meaning you're punished and you're being hit over the head with the things you've done wrong. The goal of repentance is restoration and fellowship and compassion. Remember the very first chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. I'm going to kind of turn there myself. If you don't recall it, you can turn back there with me. Which is, this is really like the theme, one of the themes that Isaiah kind of writes down that he's going to explore throughout the entire book, where God is saying, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And he later says this in the next couple of verses, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we, hear, we see it here couched in a warning, but really that's the end goal, that's the heart, and that's the compassion of God, to bring us back into fellowship so we can again walk with God. So God is near in repentance. God is near right here offering compassion. But God is near in speaking His Word. Do you realize that where the Word of God is, God's presence really is? Where the Word of God is proclaimed and preached, God is saying, I am in that Word and I'm doing my work through the Word of God. So that's why we can say with confidence as Christians at Renaissance Christian Church that when we are preaching the Word of God, we can say with confidence, God is here in the midst of of us. It's not just something that's a gimmick. We see that here taught in Scripture. In verse 10, we see that God is likening His Word. He, you know, he, he likens His promises like a, a feast in which we can partake. And then He uses another powerful metaphor, likening His Word to rain and snow falling down from heaven. And this is the confidence that we have in God's Word that God is saying, when I, my Word falls from the heavens, it will do good work. It's going to cause an effect. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it forth, bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth and shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In the way, we, we kind of have things reversed in our metaphors. God is talking about the feast and then He's talking about the original 
seeds of the word, the, the water of the word that, that watered the ground, that, that grew the bread, if you will, that God is now offering to us as a feast. But really, this is the, this is the method of God to rain down His word on us, to rain down His words on the soil of our hearts so we can bring great fruit in our lives that will turn into a feast, a spiritual feast in which we can consume His Word and be refreshed and be satisfied in Him. So God's Word, He is saying, will prove effective in everything. The King James translation of um, verse 11 is, My word will not return void. And we often see that quoted many places. And we often use it as saying, to say that, oh, you know, when I witness to my non-believer neighbor or when I quote Scripture, his word's not going to return void. It's going to do something. Well, this is that, that passage. This is where we get that idea of God's word really being effective when we preach it. So what's the, the currency of change in the kingdom of God? How does God bring about change? Effective, real, spiritual change. Is it action? Is it voting? Is it... Is it uh, Revolution in many ways. No, God brings about change by His Word. And we can have confidence in that. And we can have confidence that the fruit that His Word, His original promises will grow into, will return to His glory. And they will glorify Him. We can have confidence in the Scriptures that we read. In Jeremiah chapter 1, Verse 12, we see God also um, referencing the kind of same idea where he's, God is saying, I am watching over my word to perform it. So it's not God, that God is sending out words of his, out of his mouth and kind of winding them up and letting them kind of spin and sputter out. It's not that kind of effectiveness that we're looking at. But God, when he speaks something, he says, no, I'm going to bring this to fruition. All to tell us that God does not speak flippantly, He does not lie, and He does not speak lightly when He's making promises. He speaks seriously, and He follows through. And lastly, as we um, continue on in this, in this chapter, we see the assurance that God gives us. So in Isaiah chapter 55, we'll continue on in verse 12 and 13. The end here. It says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in the singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And so God gives us and His people the in his people in this time in exile, the assurance of their safety. He, God ensures a safe arrival to, into the fruition and the fullness of his promises. And so the, here's a scene in which all of nature seems to celebrate the people of God going out. The trees are, 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 are clapping their hands. The mountains are singing. The hills are, I guess, literally alive right here. But the whole point of this is that it's a sort of exodus. God's people are coming again in a kind of a second exodus, just as they came out of Egypt. They're coming out of exile back into the prom his fruition and the fullness of His promises. And in a larger sense, 
we should observe that those whom God brings into His ultimate eternal promises will really have a safe conveyance there. They're going to get there safely. And lastly, we see in this assurance God's great um, concern for His reputation. Notice the end of verse 13. We see something about making a name for the Lord. And this really is a translation. It's kind of... It's, the idea is this is for the Lord's renown, for His reputation. Those whom God brings really into the realization, to the fullness of His promises, are they themselves monuments and signposts of God's faithfulness. And really, that's why the original Exodus was so important. We see that continue to go return to, in, in especially in the Psalms. The Psalms in which people have to go back and remember God's faithfulness, and they remember the Exodus. That proves, the proof that we're here in this land, rather than slaves in Egypt until today, proves God's faithfulness that we're here. And so for the Christian today, I mean, aren't we monuments of God's faithfulness? Aren't our testimonies powerful when we're talking to our friends and neighbors about the Gospel message to say, Christ actually changed me from the life I used to live. That's a sign. That's a, that's a testament to God's faithfulness. And that's who these people were supposed to be. And so, what can we learn from this passage? And what can we apply to our lives today? Well, simply stated, the salvation that God was promising then, we really have in fullness in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. That Jesus came as the perfect Messiah from the line of David to fulfill all these promises and to deliver these promises to us so that we can partake in this feast. We today benefit from these promises made so long ago in Scripture if we believe on Jesus' name. Maybe you've done you know, an, an exercise in, if you're, you're studying the Bible and they ask you maybe to write your name in the promises of God where it's like, I know the plans I have for you, Jared. You know, plans to, to, to prosper you and things like that. We, we, you know, we often you know, write our name to make those personal. But really, that's, that's the reality that we are part now of a people that can experience these promises today. That's the reality. So what should we do in response? Well, first, we should grow our desire for God. A lot of what I've said today might be meaningless to you if you don't already have a hunger for God. Because maybe you haven't recognized your true spiritual state. That you're spiritually impoverished and you're destitute and you're actually, your fellowship from God is actually cut off in our natural state when we're, when we're sinners. And that we need to be reconciled somehow. And that should give us the desire for His righteousness. Or maybe you already know that and you've gone through that as a Christian and you already recognize, oh, I, I need Jesus because I know I'm a sinner. But have you dulled your spiritual appetite? What else are you using to satisfy you? Are you hungry for the Word of God? Are you letting His Word work in your life? Because remember, as, as Thomas Watson said, if you don't have an appetite, you're essentially spiritually dead. 
Do you have a spiritual appetite? We should grow our desire for God. But the second thing is that we should really remember to respond to God's invitation. For those of us who are not believers, who are not Christians, those of us listening online as well, is that God is calling us, commanding us to respond to that invitation and to partake in that banquet of God's promises fulfilled. That through Christ, you're offered, through His death and His resurrection, you're offered forgiveness of sins. You're offered an eternal home in heaven. You're offered fellowship with God. And God is saying, it's free. It doesn't cost any money. You simply have to take it and accept it. And when God comes near to you in that, your whole life will be changed. So respond to God's invitation. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus gives a parable. It's usually called the parable of the the banquet where he goes and it's a man who puts on a banquet and he invites all his rich friends and they initially, uh, the the indication is that they initially say, oh, we'll we'll probably make it, yeah. And then all at the last minute they bail and they say, we can't make it, we're doing these various things. And Jesus says in verse, um, Luke chapter 14, verse 23, because of that, the person who puts on the banquet says this, go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be fulfilled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. We do realize that even though this is a completely free offer, there are many people who reject it because they don't think they need God. They don't want to turn from their lives, if you will. They they would rather spend it on something else on which is not going to satisfy them. And Jesus is saying, well, we'll give it to maybe the beggars out in the street. Give it to the homeless people. And really, that's what, that's what we are. We are beggars coming to this feast that God has put on. We need to be compelled to come in, if you will. C.H. Spurgeon has a great sermon called Compel Them to Come In, in which you know, he's, he's earnestly pleading with people to accept Christ. It's a, great, it's a great read, and it's based on this passage in Luke. Anyways, the third thing really we should do in our lives is to feast on His promises. If we've truly experienced the goodness of God and we've benefited ourselves from His promises, then we should have confidence that His Word really does work. And that we can quote Scripture to our friends and neighbors. We can rely on Scripture in our own lives knowing that God will fulfill His Word. We can have confidence in it. Moreover, and I think this is one of the many teachings in Christianity that we underemphasize, is we can have assurance. That we can have the, the doctrine is usually called of assurance, which is to say, examine yourself and assure yourself that you are really a child of God. And by living a Christian life, and by continually repenting, you'll eventually assure yourself of the hope of heaven. Did you know you don't have to go through life wondering if you're saved or wondering if I need to maybe pray again or something like that? You don't have to go through life wondering because the Bible tells us to make sure in our own lives whether we're really in the faith. And that's a daily discipline for Christians. It's a daily discipline for me where every single day we need a paradigm shift to think, okay, I can't think like the world. I need to think like God. I need to examine myself and making sure that I'm living, focusing on the nearness of God and letting His Word go into my heart and make those changes, those necessary changes that it needs to. And so just remember, 
that we who are believers, we're not in a club, we're not in a privileged club, we're simply beggars off the street, invited to the grace of His promises, the grace of the feast that He offers. So as we consider that, let's pray. Lord, where can we go to satisfy ourselves? What other thing can we contrive or buy or work toward that can actually bear any real fruit in our lives, that can satisfy the need that we all feel for Your righteousness and for Your goodness? Lord, where else can we go but the feast that You've provided for us? And I ask, Lord, for everyone in our midst that even if we're believers for 10 years, for 20 years, or if we feel ourselves standing on the outside maybe and we feel, I'm not a believer at all. We, if we feel that way, Lord, let us all consider that we can come to the same feast. That we can come near to God through the provision He's made through Christ and let that change us. That we can feast on His promises. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.